Welcome to our continued study of Romans. And today we're going to be in chapter 7. So before we do anything else, let's pray. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, good morning, Lord. We, we love hearing your word. And this morning as we hear it here and hear it at the next service, I pray that you would illuminate it for us. Lord, uh, Peter even said that some of the things that Paul says are difficult to understand. And Lord, without your spirit, we won't understand any of it, uh, rightly anyway. So Lord, send your spirit, help us to discern your word, and may it not return void. I pray that it would strengthen your people and uh, it would have its work. And we know it will because it never returns to you void. We pray all these things in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, for a very quick review this week, and I'm going to try to make it quick. I was listening to all, I've been listening to the other elders teach, and it's really cool how um, every, each one of us, I, I notice, have a different, not only style, but emphasis, and it's great that, uh, like this week, I'm going to be, the theme in the last week, the week before, and next week, and possibly even next week, is sanctification. And uh, the different ways that we approach it, it's fascinating to me. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Eric and DeWitt's on chapter 6. But anyway, let me do a quick review. Uh, Paul, in the first two and a half chapters, described how all Jew and Gentile, which is including everybody, are all scofflaws, whether it's the written law in our heart or the law given in the Torah, uh, we've all broken it, and it's, it can be summarized in chapter 2, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then uh, from 321, that's the hinge, 321, where it goes to um, the solution to the problem, Paul explains... And that through chapter 5 explains that we are justified, that is, made, made right before God in his sight. And he uses Abraham as his paradigm example. We spent a lot of time talking about that great exchange where Jesus' death propitiates or appeases the wrath of God and God imputes his righteousness to us. And... In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, we are no longer his enemies. Now we have peace with God. Before we were in a war, now we have peace. Um, It's a peace, though, that starts a new war, which we'll talk about today, a war with sin. And in chapter 5, you may recall, alluding to the Duke nonsense, who's your daddy? And it's not bad, your daddy, you have one of two daddies. You're either... um, a child uh, in Adam or in Christ. So then chapter 6 begins with a section which goes through chapter 8, dealing with this all-important subject of sanctification. So we're right in the middle of that section today in chapter 7. We'll be dealing with the first 13 verses and with an emphasis on the first six, actually. So if you'll recall, right out of the gate in chapter 1, Paul states in verse 5, he says, 
that one of the aims of the letter, of his letter, is to, and I quote from verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So, uh, with that, let's now read our text passage for today, Romans 7 through 13. So, <clears throat> this is God's word, so let's all pay attention. If I can get there myself here. Here we go. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what shall we say then? Uh, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, God forbid. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and though it, and, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did That which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, you'll... uh, I said I'd put an end to some silliness, but one of them is... That I'm, I'm, I have a pattern developed where I do the Sesame uh, Street thing. And uh, so, uh, remember, uh, well, today this, this teaching is brought to you by the letter L. But wait, no, wait, we had that already. Does, does anybody remember what the letter L we talked about was? Lokizama, which means what, Dave? It's. Yes, imputation. We talked ad infinitum almost on what imputation means 
it's a very important word. So since we've had L, I'm going to switch it up today. And the, this teaching is brought to you by the letter N, which is uh, for nomos. And nomos in, is the Greek word for law. Today is all about law. Um, and so clearly in this passage, law is the subject today. The word nomos in the Greek appears 24 times in Romans 7, in chapter 7, and in the verse 4 chapters of chapter 8, it, 24 times. Synonyms of the word law, commandments, appear six times, and the word principle, and he's referring to principles of the law, appears twice. So uh, all refer to the law, and that means Paul references law 32 times in chapter 7 in the first four verses of 8, which we won't get to all that. And yet, it's law, 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 and yet you rarely hear Christians talk about the law today. It's not in our conversations, but it was real important to Paul, obviously. Perhaps you're like me as a new believer. You would uh, take verses and um, out of context and memorize them and kind of as a standalone um, we do that a lot. Uh, like, for example, uh, the classic is, uh, I think, you know, the verse that says, we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. And we'll, we'll apply that to, I want to I wanna, uh, lose weight or I want to, whatever, whatever our goal is, make more money this year, I can do all things. We, we apply that, and it's often, or I think usually when we say it, it's out of context because it was, you know, written in the frame of I can live in the cold, Paul is saying, all the things I can suffer with Christ, and we kind of twist it around. But it's not a standalone thought with no regard to context. And, uh, and, And remember, there are no chapter breaks in the letter that Paul wrote you didn't have chapter breaks. It was one letter. And we tend to read one chapter today, another chapter tomorrow. I mean, we're, this is evident today if we're doing that. Last week we did chapter six. We're going to, I mean, um, six, yeah, and that, today we're doing seven. So um, we tend to break it up where it'd be better if we didn't. Well, that's, it wasn't like that with Paul's letter. There were no chapter headings. And in verse 1 of this passage today, Paul is obviously going back to chapter 6, verse 14, where he said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul is in chapter 7 is going to tell us what he meant by that statement. So while those verses between 6.15 and 7.1, well... He did not want to be misunderstood because it's, it lends itself to that, to taking it out of context. Um, I think Paul realized when he, as soon as he said 614 that it, there would be some dangerous and wrong interpretations of it. So he wanted to make sure he wasn't misunderstood. Uh, have you ever, you know, some might say and some have said and still say, that we no longer need to live by the moral law. Uh, they'll, they'll quote this verse. Uh, you're not, we're not under law. We're under grace. They'll, they'll quote 614 in their justification for that. The law doesn't apply to us. It's now all about love, not law. 
you'll hear these things, and I used to say these things. And you have a lot of people today, I used to be one of them, who think, kind of like Marcion, the Old Testament is about law, the New Testament is about grace and love. And clearly, we shouldn't think that way. That mentality is where, for example, in regard to certain commandments, let's take the seventh, for example, you'll hear people say, well, yeah, they're shacking up, yes, but as long as they love each other, it's okay. You'll, You'll hear... In our culture, that kind of disregard for the law, for the moral law. And so Paul wants to make sure we don't, uh, he wanted to make sure we didn't, he didn't communicate the wrong thing in verse 14. So he's emphatic in those verses, last week uh, DeWitt went over, that we're not free to live as we please apart from the moral law. And after telling us what he didn't mean and in 614 he's going to tell us in chapter 7 what he did mean by the statement so as your outline in the handout reflects this passage breaks out nicely as follow follows in verses 1 through 6 paul describes what the believer what is the believer's relationship to the law and and then verses 7 through 13 talk about how being under the law contributed to his and our conversion slash regeneration. And then in verses, which we won't deal with today, 14 through 8-4, which Terry next week will go over, um, Paul tells us how the law does and doesn't contribute to our sanctification. That's the, the, also the theme this week is not only law, but how it relates to our sanctification. So, in verses 7, 1 through 6, he addresses the Christian's relationship now with the law. And, you know, last last week he used, in chapter 6, he used the analogy of slavery, how we're no longer slaves to the law. This week he's going to use the analogy of marriage. And, And the basis of how one can change husbands, if you will. He says, as long as a person lives, he continues under the authority of the law. You know, a dead man isn't subject to the law. You're not going to, a prosecutor couldn't come to the judge and say, hey, I want to press charges against this guy uh, um, and uh, Ida B. Deceased is his name. Anyway, Ida, he has a a very, very, he he did a lot of evil things. And the judge says, okay, well, uh, where is he? Well, judge, he's dead. And, you know, judges go going to say, stop wasting my time. I am not going to prosecute a dead man. We cannot try a dead man because, um, for one, uh, we can't punish him. He's dead. We can't put him in prison. You know, get out of here. So it's ridiculous. And Paul kind of has that in mind with this passage. <clears throat> um, he says, as long as the person lives, he continues under the authority of the law. And that covenant was made, marriage I made to Dorothy, till death do us part. I will, as long as we both shall live. If one of us dies, this covenant arrangement is, is off. As long as, you know, as we went over in earlier chapters, uh, when we are born into this world, we are born under the law. The law was given to the Jews as in the Torah. The law was written on the hearts of all of us, Jew and Gentile. And that law had authority over us and still does in, 
in our, we're still under Adam in, in that sense. In verse 4b, I guess the second half of verse 4, it says, We who are Christians have been married to someone else. And that someone else is namely Christ. But now, you know, one of the wonderful buts in the Bible, there's so many, we have a new husband. How did that happen? Did the law die? Did the law die enabling us to marry another? Paul did not say that. We died. We died via via our union with Christ when he died. If we are in Christ, we also died with Christ. So now we're under the authority of grace and we have been released from the law. We now serve a new master in a new and living way. And, you know, that is now by the Spirit, not that written code of the law. And the scriptures here, throughout the scriptures, but particularly here, they tell us what it's like living under that new husband. And and they tell us what both husbands are like and what we are like. So first, what is living under the husband of the law like? What What is that like? Well, as I said, the law was a written code. And what was it written on? Stone tablets. Um, so what was stone, what is stone like? Somebody give me some adjectives of, a stone, of stone. Good, hard, rigid. Solid, yeah. Yeah, uh, they don't decay very quickly for sure. Long lasting, that's a good one. A lot of, I love it. Y'all give me things I didn't think about. Unyielding, yes. No flexibility with that big rock. Other adjectives? Dead. Okay. Yeah, there's no life. It's lifeless. Very lifeless. Anything else? What? Heavy, yes. Heavy, yes. It can be. If it's a big one, it certainly can be. The bigger, the heavier. But yes, it is heavy. And the law is heavy. Ancient, yes. That, that one, that stone was for sure. Yep. Foundational. Yep. The law is definitely that. Um, I think y'all... Okay, concrete, no pun intended, right? As opposed to abstract. Yep. All right. Y'all hit all the ones I thought of except for one. Yeah. And it has no feelings, right? The rock doesn't have feelings. The law doesn't have feelings. Um, so the only one that I wrote down that I haven't heard is cold. Typically, a rocks can, you know, you go outside here and pick up that rock. You won't want it for a pillow. It'd be cold. Um, so the law tells its wife the same message every day. When the wife gets up, the husband stands over her. And he has demands. He gives her demands. Today, I expect you to cook the meals, to wash the clothes, to keep the kids, um, take care of the children, and clean the house. I have expectations of you, and if you, and and the law, and, and this husband brings threats to that wife if she doesn't do those things. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And those threats were stapled onto the commands. The do's and don'ts. If you don't live up to this standard, 
there will be some adverse, not-so-pleasant consequences for you. If you don't keep every commandment completely, perpetually, and perfectly for the very least least, uh, aberrance away or failure, there is going to be a curse and there's going to be condemnation. That is what the law functionally does for this wife. Ladies, how would you like to live with a husband like that? Any, anybody? No, of course not. Um, it demand, uh, demands obedience, and you are bound to him. The law has bound her to this husband. With a husband like that, it, it's a grim reality. You're not free to marry or live with a kind, gracious husband as long as you're married to this husband. And you're weak. And you don't have the resource to perform what he demands, the law demands, this husband. He, he expects a hot, wonderful hot dinner at night, but he gives you no money, to, no resources to buy the groceries for this dinner. You cannot possibly live up to this husband's demands. It's like the uh, Egyptians. What did, you know, the Pharaoh told the Egyptians, I want my brick quota, but I'm not going to give you any straw. The law is like that. He doesn't give him any straw to make the bricks that he's demanding. So contrast that with the most gracious husband, what it's like to be under a gracious husband. If only we could be married to Jesus Christ. What is he like as a husband? If we could have him as a husband... Let's turn to Isaiah 54. We get a picture of what that might be like. Let me get there. I should have gotten here before. Here we go. Turn there with me in Isaiah 54. And notice the change of tone that we have here, beginning with verse 4. How does Christ treat his bride? With kind words, no bitterness. And there's an emphasis on what he will do for her. His words, verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. The law, that former husband will put you publicly put you to shame if you don't meet the demands. You will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of our youth, your youth, And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face, but with everlasting love I will have compassion, compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Look, look in verse 9 he says, uh, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. Uh, the mountains may depart, hills removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Uh, 
it's amazing how often you see in Scripture the, the words, I will, when God quotes, I will, I will do this, I will do that. And it's, all, it's not, you don't have to do anything. You, or you, you um, it, when it comes to salvation, it's I will. And, and it's the same, I, I would argue, for sanctification. We'll get to that, more on that later. So you hear these words of promise quoted by God in Scripture. So how would you respond to a husband like that, ladies, or us as the bride of Christ? The natural response would be you would want to please him, right? Do we not love him because he first loved us? So as I mentioned, the last time we ended with a question, who is your daddy? Uh, Today I want to ask you, who is your husband? Is it the law, or is it Christ? And if we love him, what will we do? Jesus said, those that love me, they will keep and obey my commandments. So we are all in the battle of our life, the battle with sin. And it's a very hard, um, tough battle. You know, I I listened to... um, Eric's and DeWitt's uh, messages last two weeks. And as you'll recall, Eric said, just do it several times. And there's certainly a place for having resolve. And, and, uh, but honestly, that Nike approach, just do it, never worked for me uh, with, in my struggle with sin. Uh, but I loved Eric's emphasis. The, the takeaway for me as I listened to that, it was very encouraging. He said... You can do this. With, with God's help, you can win this fight. Um, you can be free of the bondage of sin. It was very encouraging. I think, though, the most powerful and effective way we can be victorious in the fight with sin is when we see and believe, not only here but here in our heart, how very good and gracious our new master, our new husband is. We live in an age of grace, and you and I are just like that woman who was dragged out, drug out, uh, when she was caught in adultery. And we have all adulterated our husband, our God, our maker. But what did Jesus do with her? The law said stoner. Speaking of it hurting, <laughs> it killed her. Um, and then what did uh, Jesus do. He, he started writing his finger in the dirt and he said, he, let him who did the first sin throw the first stone, right? Let him cast it. So it came down to just the two of them and he said, where are your accusers? Doesn't anybody accuse you? And he, she said, no, Lord. And Jesus, of course, as you know, said, neither do I can you go and sin no more Uh, Jesus says I am meek and lowly and gentle my yoke is easy my burden is light Uh, one thing I love about the Messiah is how repetitive it can be you just listen to it's just all scripture 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 but when they sing my yoke is easy my burden is light," over and over and over again it's like I might just get it if you pounded me long enough 
That's what Christ is like. His yoke is easy. His burden, my burden is light. And I think the real key to victory over sin is remembering that, is truly believing that our husband is really like that, our new husband. Does not Paul tell us elsewhere that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? Uh, Boo, hand me those books under your Bible on the left there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think this little book that I just bought, I haven't read it, but the title of this book says it all. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. Has have any of y'all read this by chance? Okay, great. Um, is it good? <laughs> I love the title. I hope that I, if the rest of it's good. While I'm on books. It's DTF for the next two months. Is it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's why I bought it. Okay. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> so if you men come to the Dead Theologian Society and we're going to study, I need to get on it because it's next week, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay, that's why I bought that book. Okay. <laughs> All right, so while I'm recommending books, I have been going over with some of the men in the church, young men in the church this book called The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard, and it is outstanding on this topic of how we fight our sin. Any of y'all read this by chance? Okay, Kevin, you have? Hmm? The Enemy Within with Chris Lungard? Yeah. It's a new version. Oh, great, Okay. The subheading, straight talk about the power and defeat of sin. Um, I think I saw where the women may be studying this in their DTS version of Harside um, in the spring. But anyway, that's another great, great resource. So we will find our desires changing because we now have a greater affection for our new, our kind and gracious husband the one who, whose love is steadfast and endures forever toward you and me. With Christ as our husband, our relationship to the law has changed. It no longer condemns us. The law has always been good and right. But now we say, like Psalm, when we read Psalm 119, uh, oh, how I love your law. It no longer feels mean and cold because it reflects the character of our new husband who loves us so much. So the law leads us to the gospel to tell us how to be saved, and then the gospel leads us back to the law to teach us how we should live. So I would be remiss in the subject matter of law if I didn't talk about the three categories of law. Basically, there are three categories, which I'll go over now, get this out of the way. The first is, and all these are found in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, basically. The moral law is reflected primarily in the Ten Commandments, and they're still in effect, by the way. We still should not steal. We still should not um, murder people. We still should observe the Sabbath, honor our parents, and so forth, not covet, etc., And some have said and still say, as I mentioned, that we no longer need this moral law. It's all about love now, not law. And the law doesn't apply to us. Uh, You have those folks who uh, think, you know, Old Testament law, New Testament love. Uh, That mentality is still around. So people will say, now all I have to do is love. Oh, and I love what Calvin said about that. He said, as though that's easier, right? (laughs) You know, 
Jesus took the law. It's as though Jesus was a softer and gentler Moses. No, he took the law to the fourth degree. He put it on steroids. As you know, he said, uh, not just don't murder, but if you're even angry, uh, that's you've erred. Uh, he expands that de- definition for a lot of things, not just adultery for having an affair, but even thinking lust in one lustful thought and so forth. If anything, the law is stronger in the New Testament than it was the Old Testament. So that's the moral law. And then you have this cer- ceremonial law as reflected in the entire sacrificial system, and all of which is a foreshadowing of the work and person of Christ. And it was fulfilled by Christ, and it is obsolete now. The civil law is reflective of how they were to function as a society and us. Um, it was how the nation of Israel was to administer justice, and it also, I would contend, is obsolete now. Now, our, um, as you can see, I disagree with our uh, theonomous friends who believe that we should restore and revive the civic laws. But even Israel is no longer a theocracy, and Lord knows the United States isn't one. <clears throat> so, uh, but that's not to say we can't learn from it. And uh, we certainly in our country have applied many of the great principles of the civil law uh, to our judicial system, thankfully, and very wisely. So in addition to these three categories, I didn't write a slide for it, I, should have, there are three uses or functions of the law. And primarily I'm talking about the moral law here. The primary purpose of the law is what? Paul's talked to this. Convict of sin. That's right. A mirror. Somebody say mirror. Is that what you said? Mirror. Jeff said it. <laughs> That's right. And we talked about that. The mirror can not... It can show us our face dirty, but it can't wash it. I also like the analogy of sunshine. Uh, I often will clean my windshield or Dorothy, would, uh, for, to, to please my wife, I'll clean the windows on my back sunroom. And I think I've done such a great job. You know, late in the day, I'll, they just look so good. And the next morning, the sun shines on them. And man, all those spots uh, that I miss, that's what the law is like. Um, it. And that, uh, that's the primary purpose of the law. We see in our text today in verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't know what sin is, Paul said. So the second, another function is it restrains evil. It can't save, but it does allow for some uh, limited justice on this earth before we have perfect justice realized one day. And then... The third use or function of the law is that it reveals uh, how we can please God, what is pleasing to God, because the law reflects his character. If there was ever a a law that could say this law would, it shows us the character of God. Now, when it comes to the law, there are two basic extremes often that people take. We can err on the side of legalism or err on the side of what's called antinomianism or anti-law, nomian meaning law, or actually technically anti-against, no, against the law. And Paul addresses um, the latter often in his letter. So now, now that we're justified by faith, now what? Can we live however we jolly please and continue to enjoy our sins? He 
answers this objection often in his letter, in the, in the meat of it we've talked about. So legalism can take different forms. Um, it can add rules, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, uh, etc. Or legalism could be saying we must keep the law to be saved. Um, many fall in that. I once did. Luther has, um, you know, I quote Luther a lot. I love Luther. Luther often would say, we are just like the guy trying to mount a horse who's drunk. We are on one extreme. We try to get on the horse, and we fall off on the other side. Uh, That's certainly, I can certainly relate to that. I've been on the side of trying to keep the law to the extreme, crossing my T's, dotting my I's, only then to experience the liberation of the gospel. I'll fall off on the other side, and it's grace, grace, grace. Um, And the seriousness of sin is minimized. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that, falling off the horse on both sides. Speaking of legalism, as DeWitt uh, did unpacked excellently last week, they're a, class, they're a classic example. But Phariseeism wasn't just a first century phenomenon, of course. Uh, I see it all the time in my heart. If I were to hire a teenager to blow my leaves and I see an oak leaf here and a I would point it out to him. You you miss that oak leaf here, a couple of maple leaves over here. Uh, Did I not tell you, you know, remember me telling you how, you know, the government has this left leave no child behind policy, and I told you how I have a leave no leaf behind policy. Don't you remember me telling you that? I mean, that's that's how my heart works. Now, if if, if I hired your teenager to blow my leaves, I would not say that to him because I know it's not gracious. But in my heart, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, it's, and I justify it by saying, you know, I'm just trying to teach him a good work ethic. That's how I, you know, when Jesus, you know that phrase where Jesus said, wishing to justify himself, you know, that, that's a phrase we should pay attention to. We do that all the time a lot, or I do. Um, so the legalist says things like, uh, if you leave the top off this Tylenol one more time, I'm going to divorce you. Well, maybe not divorce you, but I'm going to be hacked about it, Right? Uh, You've got to close those cabinets. Well, you know, I, these little things, I'm sure, um, that, I see that all the time in my heart. So if you want to know, if you, you ever wondered what, a, what it's like to live with a Pharisee, you need to talk to this woman. <laughs> Next, there you go. That woman right there. Uh, Lord have mercy. Um, and um, by the way, I took this picture. She was talking to a friend, preparing my dinner, cutting up vegetables. And uh, uh, every, I, I put it on my phone, it, 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 so I see it a lot. And every time I do, uh, the, the Stevie Wonder, uh, Isn't She Lovely, comes to mind. Isn't she wonderful? Anyway, couldn't resist it. To, you know, make, get brownie points to my wife here. <laughs> So anyway, I am living uh, Pharisee. And yes. <laughs> Who's doing that? Oh, yes, with the mic. Yeah, I, of course it's Dave. All right, so anyway, um, back. And, and it's very encouraging to see uh, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, become a believer, who I think became a believer. And there's, so there's hope for Pharisees or recovering Pharisees like me and like many of you, I'm sure, also. 
So if you're familiar with church history, there have been many movements where they ran off the rails on this subject, um, how they view sanctification. Uh, you know, we talked about what Jesus said, be perfect, as, um, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And many have interpreted that to mean that perfection is, in this life is attainable. You know, after all, Jesus wouldn't command it if it weren't doable, would he? Or so they think. So many have uh, taken different forms in one form or the other that we can achieve total sanctification in this life. And it goes way back in the apostolic age. John had to write the verse in 1 John, anyone who says he has no sin, the truth is not in him. So that's the first off. It must have, he must have been dealing with it in the first century. In the fifth century, Pelagius argued that we were born with a clean slate, just like Adam, in his state before he sinned. And he denied the idea of original sin. And he said that Adam was just a bad example. He argued that man did have the capacity to choose righteously. Incidentally, one of my distant relatives, my niece's ex-husband, one time we were on the back deck, and he was, uh, he, he said, you know, arguing that we can live without sin. And I said, well, how do you pull that off? How do you do that? And he said, well, you take it moment by moment. Have you sinned in the last three seconds? And I said, well, probably, yes. Uh, my heart's wicked. And I said, oh, but you take it moment, you can, you can do it. And he, oh, by the way, hated August, St. Augustine. Anyway, he, he was uh, Eastern Orthodox, by the way. But anyway, I, I derail myself here. Um, uh, so Pelagius's nemesis was um, Augustine in the same period in that century. And by the way, Pelagius was later declared by the church to be a heretic, FYI. So there are moments in the 11th century, 13th century. I don't have time to go into those, but... In the 16th century, some, but not all, the Anabaptists went that route, um, went with it. One of the more influential movements of a version of perfectionism came in the 16th century, or excuse me, the 18th century, under the teaching of John Wesley. There are many spin-off denominations of his holiness theology, and they're still around today. Um, the Wesley brothers, Charles and John, would be more semi-Pelagian. I don't have time to unpack that, but um, in their later years, they stressed more the love of God, and they would write some of the most beloved hymns that are still popular in our hymn book today, albeit with an Arminian slant that we see in some of them. Uh, in fact, we've altered them. I don't know how we did that without breaking the copyright, but anyway, um, they're, they're all good if you sing them. So... Uh, in the 19th century, there was the Higher Life Movement, which in the 1870s was associated with Robert Pearsall Smith, who was so influential, he even persuaded and influenced uh, Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper, who was a professor at Princeton at the time, serving with B.B. Warfield, to fall off the rails for a period. Or he, but he later, after three years of being in it, he rejected that teaching. So, let's... let's uh, Define, it's so important we understand the law and the gospel and the distinction because people have confused it. So here's, here's my definition. That I, just very simple. The law is everything that God commands, and the gospel is everything that God gives. And what God gives in the gospel is everything he demands in the law. The law demands everything and gives nothing, whereas the gospel demands nothing and gives everything. 
We must not confuse the two. The law says, do this and you shall live. Don't do this and you shall die. There will be curses. The gospel says, live and you will do this. It has a very covenantal architecture to it. One is a covenant based on conditions we must meet, the law or the works of the, um, the works covenant, as opposed to the gospel, grace covenant, a promise of what God will do, including giving us faith and repentance. It's a gift of God. The law is good, but we are not. The law commands but cannot give. It tells us what must be done, but it gives us no help in give, helping us get that. Helping us is not in the law's job description. The law is like a mirror, and it, like sunshine, as we mentioned before, it demands obedience, but the gospel gives promise. The law is like a boss. Now, how close can you really get with your boss? Now, I know there are exceptions. They're great, but he can fire you after all. So the law and the gospel are distinctly different, yet complementary. And so we talked about the rela- our relationship with law. What, is, what was Jesus' relationship to the law? Jesus obeyed it perfectly. He fulfilled it perfectly. He taught it and interpreted it perfectly. After all, he wrote it, right? I love when he, in his discourse with the Pharisees in particular, he would, it's almost like he said, let me tell you what I mean, when I, what I meant when I wrote that. Um, he, he bore the curse of the law perfectly, took its condemnation totally and completely. So let's talk a little bit more about or define sanctification. Uh, The the definition I put here, sanctification is the process, unlike justification, which is a one-and-done moment in time, God regenerates us. But sanctification is a process of being purified, being freed from sin. It comes from the Greek word hagiamos. I don't know how you pronounce that, Bill, in here to help me, Um, which means holiness. To sanctify, therefore, means to make holy. Uh, I think the best illustration of that is in this little thing. Uh, next slide, please, Boo. This diagram uh, is one of the best, I think, that describes what happens with sanctification. When we first believe, we realize that God is holy and we are not. And uh, we're sinful. And so there's a great gap between us. That We see that Christ at the cross bridged that gap, so we look to him to save us. And as we grow in the Lord... As time passes, we see more and more how very holy God is. And at the same time, we see more and more in relation against that holiness how very sinful we are. So we need a bigger cross. And that is um, our, our appreciation for the cross grows. And we see that in Paul. If you'll look, um, Paul's testimony seems to reflect this. Before he was converted, what did he say? I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, flawless. And he was even boastful. In Galatians 1, verse 14, he says, I was advancing in my zeal way beyond my years. And in Philippians 3, verse 4, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's almost like, you know, I was hot stuff back then. I have more. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews as righteousness under the law, blameless. And then what does he say at the end of his life? In, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. 
By the way, there's a lot of competition for that title. If, if any of y'all say that, I'm, I'm right there in the hunt with you. Uh, we all... And I think the reason we can say that is because I know I'm the chief of sinners because I don't know your sins, but I'm very acquainted with mine, so I can say that and think that I am the chief of sinners, and you probably can too. Well, I am inclined to believe that sanctification is both monergistic and synergistic. And that's a controversial thing, but it's, I think it's synergistic in that we do have a part to play in it. We must put forth effort as opposed to just laissez-faire approach. But I believe that at the same time, simultaneously, it's monergistic. Uh, Those who God justifies, he will sanctify. And in support of that, Philippians 2, 12, 13, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part. But for God, the same verse says, for it is God who works in you. God works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you see how it's both? I think it's a both and, not an either or. Now, I know it sounds oxymoronic to be both monergistic and synergistic. Um, I just know, uh, I hope it's right, because I just know if I have anything to do with it, I'll mess it up. So, the next slide, this is a very poor image, but it's a, this is the S&P 500 over the last, I think, 50 years, or no, 80 years, 90 years. And I think it's very reflective of what a typical believer's sanctification should look like. And notice there's some very definite lows and even prolonged periods of lowness back in the 70s, I think, with a bear market there. But that, that should be some, something like what our uh, graph of our increasing holiness may look like now. You know, like Paul, if you were to flash back my life and look at that, um, I had some definite bear markets, so to speak, in my walk. Um, and, and those are hard years. Um, if you could flash back to it when I was 18, you said that kid was an idiot. And all, what he believed was just strange. Um, that, that, in some sense, reflects uh, our walk, I think. So I, you might say I'm an evolutionist. Now, not, not Darwinian, but... Um, Sanctification is sort of an evolution of how we think. I was uh, a basket case, spiritually speaking. So, but you'll notice the trend line, and this is where I think it's a good reflection of our walk. If we're if we're truly in Christ, the the, the their higher lows and higher highs, the trend line is upward, right? It should be with our life. So, I wanted to end with, uh, let's see what time we got here, Uh, just reading from the Westminster Confession. What it has to say on sanctification is really good, of course. Great. It says, they who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death, there's that monergistic part, of and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they should and they more and more are quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the lord 
This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. Uh, kind of that great slogan of the Reformation, simul ustis peccator, comes to mind here. They're abiding still both sinner and righteousness at the same time. That's what that means. Um, they're abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for time may much prevail, that bear market thing, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part, death, overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the bad news is, as long as we're on this earth, we're going to be in that war. You won't arrive. I used to think we could arrive. We will not arrive. This is a fight that we will have to struggle with until we see Christ. But the good news, as Eric reminded us in, in, uh, in, in the slave announcement, DeWitt reminded us last week, it is a battle we can win with God's help because if God be for us, who can be against us? If you are in Christ, you are going from a war that you can't win to a war that you cannot lose because of Christ. He will keep you kept and bring you and me home. So next week, Terry will deal with the remaining half of chapter 7. And, uh, and this is one, that is another one of the most controversial passages in Romans. Because um, Paul is writing about his life, and the question is, was he writing as a pre-Christ or as a Christian? Uh, I have my own um, take on that, but I don't want to steal his thunder. But basically it says, can Dr. Heckel, Jekyll and Edward Hyde be simultaneously be the same guy? And uh, so I think you'll find it very interesting next week. Okay. Um, so any, I've been rattling off like uh, hearing me has been like drinking water from a fire hydrant. So I'm going to be quiet and ask for any comments or questions. Yes, Steve. Oh, hang on. Wait, the mic is coming. It's David's exercise period. And I'm, just to correct a uh, typological error in that last section in the Westminster Confession of Faith, number three, it says the, uh, the regenerate part doth, D-O-T-H, overcome, not death, D-E-A-T-H. You know, I thought that sentence read really strange. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Um, doth overcome. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Yes, Kyle. So it seemed like in that graph that you showed, there was, I think I understand what the downward trends were, but there, then there were... That one or the previous? Yeah, that, yeah, that, one, that one. That one. Where, so what do you, what would you account, because I don't, this is not your graph, right? I'm, I just copied right. it from... So, it is the actual performance of the S&P 500 over the last 90 years. 
Okay. <laughs> but spiritually speaking, what would you account for the, the large leaps up? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, for me personally, I think one of my big bull markets came when I started coming here under the teaching of um, Neil and now Kyle. Those guys have a unique balance of law and gospel like I've ha- never had before. And that, you know, they're, they're on the horse. They're not falling off on either side. That, that, for me, is where I had one of these catapults and I think, my sanctification. The, the God's grace of um, just learning from their teaching. Uh, any other thoughts? How, how, about, how would you others answer that? So it's, that's a great question. And... I think they can follow up with what you're saying, and, and Kyle, your question, and even I can speak for myself, is I know that some of my low times is like, he's talked about being 18. I remember when I was in college, and I was stupid too, and and uh, and, and just remembering things that you thought that were, why did I think that? And it was thanks to remembering and being under good teaching or being, you know, parents saying, okay, you really ought to consider this, or um, or a mentor, and that's Praise God for churches like we have where there is active mentorship going on. And I would say active brotherhood and sisterhood too because it's nice to have other brothers that are praying with you and for you about things that help you as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart to do new things in your own personal journey with your wife and your kids and that sort of thing. So I can see where some highs and lows that God's brought me through in that respect, even though this is the S&P 500. <laughs> yeah, the, all analogies break down in one way or the other somehow. But yeah. So, any others? Comments? Questions? You, have y'all seen, while you're walking the mic over, um, to Steve, have y'all seen these uh, things where, based on... Uh, sales of records you'll see in the 50s you know it'll have the graph that Elvis is on top or whoever it was and then it'll be in the 60s maybe the Beatles and, and it'll come and go according to the time if you had it's kind of similar to your question Kyle if you had that for my in, the influencers on me when I was 18 or well go way back my mother catechized me she was number one <laughs> you know she was a Presbyterian USA uh, mother who did catechize me. It had a huge effect on me. Then later years, it would have been, you know, pastors over the years. Certainly, Neil was up there at the top. Kyle's gaining ground now, you know, because I'm sitting under his teaching. It's just funny. It, not funny. It's, it's uh, providential how God uses different things. Yes, Steve. Hey, Marshall. You, you talked about Pelagian and the antinomian and part of that. And you also mentioned that you marched through surveying of groups. Uh, and you mentioned the Anabaptists. And and I wonder if you could clarify that a little bit uh, in the sense of uh, it, it sounded like you were saying that all Anabaptists, Anabaptists were, uh, it, it couldn't tell if it, they didn't embrace the original sin or that they were antinomial. And the reason I ask is, I mean, there's some wonderful traditions that come out of Anabaptists, yes. like, like the Mennonites and, and those that I've done life with, I didn't didn't detect that they had uh, either of those propensities. And uh, maybe it was just yeah. in that era of the 16th century. Yeah, I'm speaking. glad you brought that up because I do not want to... Uh, let me make sure I'm not communicating that 
the Anabaptists got its name from not they they not baptism infant baptism right. is a weird. second baptism yeah an, an adult baptism right. right right as opposed to adult baptism uh, we're we're against infant baptism and uh, there are so that may have sounded pejorative um, it wasn't meant to be and but there were uh, certain very I think a small minority of them like like many Pentecostals like many Presbyterians who go off in that I can pull this off, living, um, reaching holiness in, in my life. It's not just an Anabaptist thing. It's a, every, uh, the Methodist, the, you name it. Uh, all of us have that tendency because it's, um, so I hope it didn't sound pejorative. Um, it was a very small portion of the movement that went off on rails, I think, on that. And thanks for that clarity. And Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the 10 I hear there's is that the there's a march line. toward the last line. There's a march toward perfection. There's an aim toward perfection. And I don't hear many Methodists or other Anabaptists. Actually, Methodists believe in believers. I'm sorry, in infant baptism, so never mind on that. But I don't hear them claiming that we definitely can get there. Uh, but, but that's... that's right, I don't either. Okay. Um, but I don't, I don't talk to many Methodists these days. I used to hear it when I was visiting Methodist churches and the period going to it. Um, there was definitely a holiness element to Wesley. That, good point. Good point. Thank you. Other comments or questions? All right. Well, oh, sorry. Yeah, I wanted to share some help I had gotten studying Romans 7 in the past and Romans 8's right next. I think they go well together because I think Paul's trying to make a point in Romans 7 that he f finishes in 8 about th the law's deficiency was it didn't give any strength to fulfill it. And so that little graph you had, somebody asked, like, where's the ups come from? Well, it certainly doesn't come from us because Paul said that in us, in our flesh, there's no nothing good. And, and in Romans 8, we don't even know what to pray for. But the Spirit prays for us, you know. And, and when we are influenced by the Spirit, then there's that uphill. It comes from God. And when we make choices to put ourselves in the means of grace by diligence in our reading of Scripture and prayer and and attending church and fellowshipping with one another and think meditating on the words of God, that's what the spirit can use to uplift us because we recognize like the whole graph is a learning process. What do we learn? We learn in and of ourselves. We're, we're going to go, when the spirit leaves us to ourselves. we're going to go down. <laughs> but when he brings us up, it comes from him and not ourself. That's the lesson. Right. Very good. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, that, that kind of reminds me of what DeWitt I, I was uh, saying about what, what do you call it? Deformation um, periods of our life. Uh, the downs uh, are when we lose our gospel minds, I think he put it. It was very interesting and helpful. Yes, sir, Mr. Patrick. It just reminds me that this is something Neil loved to quote from Bunyan, but... Run, John, run, the law commands. 
but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. Apropos, Mr. Scott. And my favorite one to quote, uh, Charles Spurgeon said that the law and the gospel are intimate companions. They are never out of harmony. So I just I love that. Yeah. Very complimentary and very good. All right. All right. Well, let me close in prayer and we can uh, fellowship a bit. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you hold us fast. You have redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's now no condemnation to those of us because you became a curse for us, hanging on the cross, being our curse. Uh, You, Lord, are a wonderful husband, a very gracious and good husband to us, a husband who gave your life for your bride. Lord, help us reckon that old self having died with you and may You give us the grace to die to that old man even this week when we're tempted. Help us see your goodness toward us that we might not sin against you. And sanctify us, O Lord. Bring us to the obedience of faith. Uh, You alone can do it. Without you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we pray that you would do it for Christ's sake and for his glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.